Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Right this way, right this way, into the lycanthropy coaster. Buckle up and get ready for more Werewolf October. Prepare for chills and terror as we examine more true tales of werewolf murder and mayhem. Today, we'll be journeying through Nazi-occupied Germany for a look at werewolves of the Third Reich, then be crossing over into 1990s Russia to examine the case of the vicious and barbaric werewolf cop of Siberia, the most prolific serial killer in the history of Russia, and then end up in present-day Florida for an actual documented case of clinical lycanthropy that ended up in cannibalism and murder most foul. Yes, it's three acts of spine-chilling werewolf pandemonium. Let's begin. Act One, Werewolves and the Third Reich. Adolf Hitler's rise to power and the establishment of the Third Reich in Germany brought with it a disturbing resurgence of pagan myths and supernatural superstitions. Among the various ideologies that fueled Nazi Germany's propaganda machine was a sinister fascination with the occult and a distorted interpretation of ancient pagan beliefs. And one of these primordial German beliefs was in the werewolf. Hitler was obsessed with the wolf. It was an image he harnessed repeatedly from the name of his Eastern Front headquarters, the Wolf Slayer, to the implementation of Operation Werewolf in 1944, which we're going to get to in a minute. Because, that's right, the Nazis actually had an actual unit of werewolves. More than one, actually. Adolf Hitler's name itself conjures the wolf. The name Adolf is a compound derived from the old high German Eithalwolf, a composition of Athal, meaning noble, and wolf. While the term Führer literally means leader, Hitler saw it as a fatherly term as well, promoting himself as a father figure. Often when promoting himself as this kind father figure and benefactor of Germany, he referred to himself as Father Wolf. He'd also use the name Herr Wolf when traveling in secrecy. Behind his back, his subordinates would call him the Native American term, the Manitou which they thought was an evil and malevolent spirit. But it's not. It's the life-giving force that powers creation. And the Nazis were like really, really wrong about just so many things. They probably meant Wendigo, but way off there. And uh, incidentally, speaking of Hitler's nicknames, here's a funny story. One time, Hitler apparently got so angry at his generals that as he bellowed and screamed, he fell onto the floor where he became so enraged that he actually began to chew on the carpet. So the military officers who witnessed this started calling him Tepekfressa behind his back, which translates to, ready for it, carpet muncher. Lovely. <laughs> right? In the lycanthropy culture of Hollywood, werewolves are often associated with the Nazis. Kurt Seidmach, the screenwriter for the original film The Wolfman, was Jewish and had fled Germany to escape the Nazis, ending up in Hollywood. In that film, Seidmach says he used the full moon as a metaphor for the swastika, something that could turn a good man into a murderous and raving monster when it appeared before him. Yeah, American Werewolf in London famously had werewolf Nazis too, as have uh, many other films. 
we get really into all this on our history of the werewolf film. So uh, if you haven't, be sure to check that out, guys. The Nazis stole and appropriated any imagery that they deemed fit to take for their cause, like the swastika, which is actually a 7,000-year-old Sanskrit symbol, meaning good fortune and well-being. I think it's fair to call this cultural appropriation on a scale never seen before. Right. Not only did they steal it, but they ruined it forever. Right. (laughs) Nazi imagery also incorporated symbols and figures from Norse mythology, such as the runic alphabet and the god Odin. And another image appropriated by the Nazis for nefarious purposes was the wolf's angel. A wolf's angel is a sideways Z with a line through it. It's often mistaken for a rune, but it isn't. It's a heraldic charge a symbol put on a shield below the coat of arms in countries like the Netherlands and France. The symbol was inspired by medieval European wolf traps that consisted of a Z-shaped metal hook attached to a chain. They'd actually catch wolves like fish with these things, sticking this sharp Z-shaped piece of metal into a hunk of meat, the wolf gulping it down whole. In medieval times, the wolf's angel had developed into a popular medieval symbol in Germany that was associated with magical powers and was believed to have the ability to ward off wolves. The symbol appears on early medieval banners and town seals, particularly in forested regions where wolves were present in large numbers. As early as 1299, the symbol can be found on seals relating to the lords of the German Black Forest town of Wolfach. And their wolf's angel banner eventually became the municipal coat of arms for the town. And then the Nazis got their grubby hands on it and ruined this cool symbol for everyone, which sucks. It's such a cool symbol. It's got a really punk rock look to it. And many Nazi military groups appropriated the Wolf's Angel, including the Wehrmacht Panzer Division and the SS. But the image was most famously used at the end of the war by the Nazis' Werewolf Division, who used it in graffiti to strike terror in the hearts of the Allied invaders. Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS, was particularly fascinated by the occult. He established the Einenarb, a research institute devoted to investigating ancient pagan and supernatural phenomena. High-level Nazis researched everything from the Holy Grail to witchcraft. Among those mythological fascinations were werewolves. As Eric Kurlander says in his book, Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich, to the German people, werewolves represented, quote, well-meaning characters who may be bestial but are tied to the woods, the blood, the soil. They represented German strength and purity against interlopers. And I think it's interesting, real quick, while the Germans are studying witchcraft, the Holy Grail, and werewolves, the United States is developing the nuclear bomb. (laughs) It's like, yeah. did you see that movie by chance? Uh, Oh, Oppenheimer? Yes. No, I haven't seen it yet. I know you saw it the same day as Barbie, right? You did yes, the- <laughs> I did. Yeah, I got to get on that one. I, I've seen the Barbie, but not the that one. It's pretty good. Um, yeah, that is a crazy like little dichotomy there. <laughs> so in the final months of World War II, as the Allied troops pushed deeper into Nazi Germany and the Soviet Red Army pinned the German military on the Eastern Front, Hitler and his most senior officials looked to any last resort to keep their war efforts alive. Out of desperation, they turned to the supernatural for inspiration, creating two separate lycanthrope movements, one an official group of paramilitary soldiers, the other an informal ensemble of guerrilla fighters. Though neither achieved any monumental gains, both proved the power of the werewolf in sowing terror and fear in the heart of humanity. As historian Perry Bidiscombe writes in Werewolf, the History of the National Socialist Guerrilla Movement, 
The original werewolf strategy in 1944 was to have well-trained elite soldiers sneak into allied strongholds and sabotage them. But that plan failed, in part because of confusion over where the group's orders came from within the chaotic Nazi bureaucracy, and also because the military's supplies were dwindling. The second attempt at recruiting werewolves came from Minister of Propaganda Joseph Goebbels, and this time it was more successful. In 1945, as the enemy ran over Germany, Heinrich Himmler decided to implement underground guerrilla fighters who would attack the Allies and Russians in German towns using subterfuge and sabotage. They needed to name these warriors who revealed their violent nature under cover of night, something that would invoke a deep supernatural fear, something that would terrify the enemy, yet provoke support from the locals. And the name they came upon, of course, was the Werewolves. And beginning in early 1945, German national radio broadcasts urged German civilians to join the Werewolf Movement fighting the Allies and any German collaborators who welcomed the enemy into their homes. One female broadcaster proclaimed, I am so savage. I am filled with rage. Lily the werewolf is my name. I bite. I eat. I am not tame. My werewolf teeth bite the enemy. But the movement was lackluster. Even General Patton exclaiming, Quote, this threat of werewolves and murder is bunk. Most German civilians were just tired of the war, exhausted, and the writing was on the wall. As much as the werewolves tried to hide it behind their scrawled wolf's angel graffiti. But werewolf holdouts remained across the country. Snipers taking out allied soldiers, assassins killing multiple German mayors working with the occupiers. And the American media and the military took the threat of werewolves quite seriously. One U.S. intelligence report from May 1945 asserted, quote, The werewolf organization is not a myth, end quote. And historian Stephen Fritz writes in Endkampf, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Death of the Third Reich, that some American leaders saw the werewolf fighters as, quote, one of the greatest threats to security in both the American and allied zones of occupation, end quote. Newspapers ran headlines like, Fury of Nazi werewolves to be unleashed on invaders, and wrote about the lycanthrope warriors who would, quote, frighten away the conquerors of the Third Reich before they have time to taste the sweets of victory. In June 1945, two German teenagers, Heinz Petri and Joseph Schroner, were executed by an American firing squad for being werewolves, marking the last known werewolf trial and execution. Acts of werewolf terrorism continued through 1947, and it is estimated that several thousand casualties resulted from werewolf activity. But as Germany slowly returned to stability, fewer and fewer werewolf attacks took place. And within a few years, the Nazi werewolves were no more than a bizarre memory from the nightmare of the Third Reich's reign of war and terror. Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows. Ladies and gentlemen, we present Act Two, The Werewolf Cop of Siberia. Siberia stretches over the entire expanse of land from the Ural Mountains to the Pacific Ocean in Russia. 
It is a frigid and unforgiving land of ancient forests, tundra, and icy vastness. It is sparsely populated. Towns and cities are few and far between. One of these cities is Angarsk. Angarsk is an industrial city located on the Kitoy River in southeast Siberia. It is the largest industrial zone in all of Asia, hosting an electrochemical combine and huge nuclear fuel cycle centers. The city is connected to the Trans-Siberian Railway, as well as many trams and buses which go in and out of the city, making commuting to the city very easy. And back in the 90s, most of the workers lived outside of the city, commuting to work. So during this time, there were only a few thousand full-time residents actually living in the city. So while during the day, it would be fairly bustling, full of workers, at night, it would become somewhat barren. In the 90s, after the fall of the Soviet regime, the city was riddled with dozens of criminal gangs, all vying for power, all involved in complex turf wars. These gangs were brutal. They target the wives and children of rival gang members. And this just became a way of life there, something everyone was used to. And in this city, which boasted only a few thousand residents at the time, there were typically over two murders every single day. So when women, many of them sex workers, began appearing murdered and tortured on the sides of the road, some stabbed, some strangled, some bludgeoned with an axe, mutilated and decapitated, police thought it was all gang-related, rival gangs fighting over turf. These criminal enterprises were known to target prostitutes that worked for rival gang members. It was just business for these brutal criminals. But the gangs themselves, they knew different. They knew it wasn't them murdering these women. All of these women had been sexually assaulted after they were murdered and mutilated. Gang members found that disgusting. This wasn't their work. They knew the truth. There was a werewolf loose in Russia, murdering women. Only what the gangs didn't realize was that it was a werewolf cop. The dissolution of the Soviet Union had profound economic consequences for Russia in the 1990s. In the immediate aftermath, Russia experienced a severe recession marked by hyperinflation, a sharp decline in GDP, and collapsing industrial production. There was also widespread corruption and a weak rule of law. And I think this is really interesting, for we see how Germany's economic crisis after World War I led to Fritz Harman's spree of cannibalism and murder. And in America, we saw how the Great Depression caused a national kidnapping crisis where Albert Fish was able to flourish. So now, we're seeing a post-Soviet Russia in the same sort of situation. Basically, criminals are running rampant, unfettered, and in the mayhem, these terrifying serial killers are able to go undetected. In this case, the most prolific and brutal serial killer Russia had ever seen, with 83 confessed murders, a man named Mikhail Popkov, who became known as the Werewolf of Angarsk. Mikhail Popkov was born on March 7, 1964. Very little is known about his early life, and researching this case, you'll find a lot of conflicting information, but we'll try to piece it out as best we can. Said Mikhail always wanted to be a police officer, even as a young child. His mother was said to have liked her vodka and could be abusive when drunk. He was abandoned at one point and left with his grandparents for a long period. We know from past cases that abandonment issues can spark a host of antisocial behaviors. But eventually his parents took him back in. It was never a happy or stable home life. During the summer months, McCall's parents would send him off to a camp and reportedly, while other parents visited their children every weekend, 
McCall's parents would never come see him, and he'd sit alone watching the other families frolic together every weekend. And the other children would bully him over this as well. The bullying grew so bad that McCall decided to run away from the camp, fleeing back to his parents' house. He walked in to find his mother in the act of having sex with his father's best friend. And his mother was irate that he'd not only run away from camp, but barged in unannounced. Also, like so many other serial killers we see, Mikhail Popkov received severe head trauma as a child, being hit in the head with a rope swing. So Mikhail joins the military. This much we know for certain. There are these tales that he had a sweetheart, and she promised to stay faithful to him while he served his time in the military, and that when he returned, she was both married to someone else and pregnant. But it's also said this was just a girl he had a crush on, and the two never had a real relationship. Like we said earlier, so much information regarding this case conflicts itself, and there's really not that much out there. We do know for certain, though, that after returning from his service in the military, Mikhail Popkov followed through with his childhood dream of becoming a policeman. Fellow police officers recalled he could be the life of a party, that he knew lots of jokes and stories and loved entertaining. And he met and fell in love with a policewoman, and the two married and had a daughter. But not all was domestic bliss and serenity. Apparently, McCall came home one day to find his five-year-old daughter sitting outside in the Siberian cold, playing alone. He asked her why she was outside, and she explained that Mommy had had a friend over and asked her to play outside. Popkoff takes his daughter inside, and when he asks his wife about this, she says, yeah, she had a girlfriend over, they were gossiping. But ever the investigator, Popkov looked in the trash bin where he found beer bottles and a used condom. Confronting his wife, she admitted to the affair, but said it made her happy and she would continue to have affairs. Popkov relented and let her go on, later saying, Millions of people in Russia live like this. I'm just one of many. Supposedly, she would go on to sleep with many policemen who they both worked with, including McCall's own boss. But later his wife would deny all this. But according to Popkoff, a rage began to build in him, fueling an inner beast. A simmering hatred for women brewed in his heart, especially women he saw as drunks and of loose moral fiber. Women like his wife and his mother. In 1992, when he was 28 years old, the werewolf of Angarsk, Mikhail Popkov, would commit his first murder. He says he picked the girl up, completely intending to just drive her home. He was being a hero, helping a stranded woman get out of the cold and make it home safe. But when she got in his car, it became apparent that she was a sex worker and drunk. She was slurring her words, flirting with him, which reminded him of his mother. When the image of his mother flooded his senses, something came over him. He transformed into a bloodthirsty and savage beast. The inner wolf had been let loose. He took the woman deep into the far outskirts of town, down a lonely, barren road beat her senseless, and then dragged her by the hair out into the dark forest. He then demanded she strip there in the moonlight, and seeing her naked sent him into a violent frenzy, and he savaged her, stabbing, clubbing, and mutilating her. When she was finally dead, he was in such an excited state that he sexually assaulted her corpse. Afterwards, Popkov felt no remorse, no fear, no nagging regret or anxiety. In fact, he felt wonderful, fantastic. He felt like he had done something good, cleaned the streets of women like his mother, and he knew he would never stop, that this was just the beginning. 
and so began a 20-year reign of terror and brutality by the werewolf cop of Siberia. Drunken women, alone, outside discos and restaurants, became his targets. He called them fallen women. He'd lure them into his police car with a friendly smile. He'd ask them if they wanted to party. And if they said yes, he said that gave him permission to murder them. These were the women he felt he needed to rid the world of. Those who said they wanted to party, he says, wrote their death sentences. Those who asked to be taken home, saying they needed to return to their husbands and children. Those he deemed good. He simply drove to their houses and let them go with a friendly wave and... Or goodbye. The werewolf would attack them with whatever weapon he had at hand. Sometimes an axe, sometimes a knife, screwdriver, pool cue. Others he murdered with his bare hands by strangling them. One he decapitated, and another he ripped the heart out of. As he would later say, The choice of weapon was always casual. I never prepared beforehand. I used whatever object happened to be in the car. A knife, an axe, a bot. And always, once his victims were dead and mutilated, his fury at a peak, the beast inside him, fully in control now, he would sexually assault them. Some of his victims had over 170 stab wounds. That type of viciousness is really unheard of, even in the most extreme of cases. For instance, Rosemary LaBianca, whose murder we covered in the Manson family, Leslie Van Houten episode, had been stabbed 41 times and police were stunned. To stab someone 170 times shows a terrifying rage and ferocity, a truly frightening and unhinged monster. Sometimes he'd go to great pains to hide the bodies secreting them deep in the forest. Other times, he'd just leave them right on the side of the road. Many, many he dumped in or near cemeteries, which our German werewolf, Fritz Harman, also did. Once he shoved a decapitated corpse into a trash chute, he began to call himself the cleaner, saying it was his job to clean the Russian streets of what he thought of as, quote, loose women. But he also kept up the facade of a family man, a loving husband, and a good father. His wife, daughter, and fellow police officers didn't have the slightest suspicion, as he would later say. I had a double life. In one life, I was an ordinary person. In my other life, I was a murderer and hid this from everyone. As he became a legend in his own mind, and police wrote all the crimes off as gang violence, he became brasher and brasher and darker and weirder. He'd take his wife and daughter to picnics in the forest right where he'd committed a murder. He would bury victims' clothing and take his family camping, setting the tent up directly over the buried clothing. Oh, man, it's fucking creepy. And there are photos with him with his daughter smiling and happy, right at his own murder scenes. In 1998, the werewolf picked up Svetlana. She wasn't a sex worker. She wasn't drunk. She didn't want to party. She was just a 15-year-old girl on her way home to her parents on a freezing Siberian night who accepted a ride by a police officer in his warm car. The werewolf clubbed her, dragged her to the forest, beat her head against the tree, and ripped out half of her hair before sexually assaulting her and leaving her battered, naked body in sub-zero temperatures. This poor girl would awaken in the morgue with a tag on her toe. They thought she was dead when they found her in the morning, thinking no one could survive being naked in the snow overnight. This is Siberia, after all. Fucking hell, man. Can you imagine waking up in the morgue surrounded by dead bodies? Holy shit. 
She didn't know where she was or what was happening and was unable to even move. Finally, a mortuary attendant noticed she was blinking and her fingers were twitching and she was rushed to the hospital. She had near complete amnesia, couldn't remember her own name. She had to relearn how to even walk. But later, much later, she would begin to remember. She'd remember getting her head beaten against the tree and she would remember the police car and the friendly officer who offered to give her a ride in his safe, warm car. But when Svetlana and her mother came to the police with these newly uncovered memories of being picked up by a policeman in a police car, police were hesitant to believe her. But the man she described sounded exactly like Popkov, and she even identified a photograph of him. When police questioned Popkov, he just laughed it off. He said it was ridiculous. They even questioned his wife, who gave him an alibi, saying he'd been with her the entire night. Since he had an alibi, and one given by his wife, who was also a trusted police officer, the investigation was completely dropped. No one on the force could believe that the funny and charming McCall could do such a thing. They came to believe that the girl's mother was so angry at the police for not finding the actual perpetrator that she'd decided to attack and slander the police force. Yeah, another hysterical woman example. So fucked up. But Russian law enforcement did finally realize they had a serial killer on their hands. They came to the conclusion that he was either a bus driver, railroad worker, or mortuary worker because so many bodies had been found at or near cemeteries. The idea of him being a police officer was not even an option. Another thing that hindered the investigation was the Russian policy that someone had to be missing for three whole days before they could be reported as missing to the police. And often, the trail had gone cold by that point. Popkov, of course, was aware of all of this, and no doubt, even aided in all the false beliefs, as well as taking advantage of the disorganization after the fall of the Soviet empire. In June of 2000, Marina Lazina and Laila Pashkapia, both shop workers and good friends, had to work late. They got off around midnight and had started their walk home together when they were abducted by Popkov, taken deep into the Siberian forest and murdered. But this time, Popkov had made a big mistake. He'd actually left his policeman's badge at the crime scene. Popkov hurried back to the scene of the murder and quickly found his badge. But as he was about to leave, one of the women began to mumble. She was still alive. He was enraged that she had the audacity to survive his assault. Trembling with anger, he went back to his car, retrieved a shovel, and attacked her, battering her head in, continuing to mutilate her long after he was sure she was dead, attacking her friend's corpse as well. Sadly, both of these women's funerals had to be with closed caskets. They were unable to have the long Russian tradition of an open casket funeral because the mutilation of their faces was so terribly severe. Then he killed his daughter's music teacher. What could have spurned the anger of the werewolf to commit this act? This was no drunken woman of the night, wandering the shadows, looking for sex and illicit adventure. This was a teacher at an elementary school, a woman who taught his own daughter. Asked about this crime, Popkov said, My daughter asked me to give her music teacher money as the city was collecting money to pay for funerals. So I gave it to her. At some point during his time as a police officer, it's unclear when, Popkov shot and killed a rapist while he was being arrested. I don't know what to make of this. It's so weird. Is he trying to kill a part of himself, the monster in him? Is he actually capable of feeling righteous anger? Or is he just a killer, plain and simple? Does he just enjoy killing so much at this point that when he saw an opportunity, 
He took it. There was a big investigation, but he wasn't punished. And in the end, the higher-ups said he acted with, quote, fair action, end quote, whatever that means. Eventually, Popkov quit his job as a policeman. Why? It seems to be unknown. But he was quickly able to get a job as a security guard for an oil and chemical company. Meanwhile, the press is really starting to cover these murders now, dubbing the killer the Wednesday killer, because many of the murders happen on a Wednesday, and of course calling him the werewolf, an old moniker that the gangs had used when women first began to end up dead on the sides of the road. Newspapers printed gruesome crime scene photos and talked about the police incompetence, which had become legendary in Russia at this point. It's a huge scandal. And the Ministry of Internal Affairs creates a task force in 2002, and investigators from Moscow are sent to the city. But many of the Moscow investigators thought they were just random killings and just wanted to get the hell out of Siberia, get back home. DNA testing was just in its infancy, and though they had plenty of the killer's DNA, a single test cost thousands of dollars which was equivalent to the yearly salary of the average policeman, just for one DNA test. The police force had the budget to do two DNA tests every year in a place that has upwards of two murders every single day. And in the end, other cases somehow took precedent. That is insane. So no DNA testing was done. The Moscow investigators went home, the case went cold, and the killings appeared to stop. Popkov later claimed that he stopped committing murders when he became impotent by contracting syphilis from one of his victims. If this is true, it really just goes to show how sexual sadism was such a deep part of this werewolf's crimes. As much as he liked to say it was the women's fault, that he was trying to clean up the city, it's painfully obvious that these killings were done for his own deviant sexual satisfaction. But 10 years later, in 2012, finally DNA testing had become affordable and tests were performed, linking a minimum of 22 murders together. The killer's DNA was matched against a DNA database 3,500 of whom were police officers who had given DNA samples as part of their job requirement. Can you guess who instantly came up as a match? And on June 23rd, 2012, Popkoff was arrested buying a car. He was calm and cordial and went without a fight. After his arrest, he immediately confessed to killing the 22 women. He was put on trial and convicted for 22 murders and sentenced to life imprisonment, as Russia has a formal moratorium on the death penalty. Yeah, I don't think I really realize that there's no death penalty in Russia anymore. It's interesting, but his mother defended him. And even during his arrest and trial, she would call him her Mishka. His daughter stood by him as well, saying he was a kind and loving father. And to this day, despite undeniable DNA proof, she refuses to believe her father was the killer. It reminds you a little bit of Albert Fish's daughter. She stood by him, though she didn't deny he was a murderer. She just said he was a good man that was sick and suffered severe mental health issues. And <clears throat> Miska's wife stood by him as well describing the allegations as fairy tales, saying, We have been married for 28 years. If I suspected something wrong, of course I would divorce him. But I support him. I believe him. If he were to be released right now, I would not say a word. But we would continue to live together. I love him. All these years, he's never done me any harm. I feel safe with him. But of course... His wife didn't know the wolf lurking inside him. She only knew the man, the barbaric and savage monster that was his other self he had successfully hidden from her. 
And Mishka didn't deny it, saying, I could not anticipate the examination of DNA. I was born in another century. Now there are such modern investigations and methods, but not earlier. If we had not got to that level of genetic examination, then I would not be sitting here today. And three years later, when he is now faced with being sent to the infamous Black Dolphin Prison in Russia, a barbaric place of forced hard labor, he offers up more victims to the police and admits to another 59 murders. 59. Insane. And by confessing to these, he goes back to trial so he doesn't get sent to the Black Dolphin. Investigators are able to find direct evidence to 56 of these murders. He's tried all over again, and in 2018, he's convicted of 56 more murders. Again, he's about to be sent to the Black Dolphin, one of the harshest prisons in the world. And he's an ex-cop and a rapist. He's fucked in prison. In 2020, he confesses to two more murders, bringing the total to 83. Making him the most prolific serial killer in Russian history, surpassing Andrei Chikatilo's confessed 56. And as of now, the werewolf cop of Russia awaits trial, stalling and stalling the fate of the Black Dolphin prison which awaits him. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Gina. And together we are Men's Wellness Theater. Or at least we try. Uh, we try to survive it. <laughs> We're the hosts of The Worst, a podcast where I deep dive horrible subjects and tell the story to Gina... And I tell terrible, tasteless jokes to kind of break up the awful, soul-crushing details that you bring us. I try and you try, and that's what makes it great. Yeah, I mean, stop being upset. We are trying our best. And honestly, we're weird people. We find this makes it a little more palatable to get through the horrible details of some of the worst true crime. Yeah, because otherwise, I just want to take an ice pick to my own eardrums. I can't do it anymore. No. So if you're the type of person who finds, you know, Weekend at Bernie's the most hilarious movie ever, we might be up your alley. Give us a try. Absolutely. Just look for Mental Illness Theater on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you happen to use for podcasts. Which brings us to Act 3. The frat boy cannibal. Austin was a clean-cut, all-American college kid with a goofy but charming smile. He was well-liked and loved by his family. Friends described him as gentle. But one night, a beast would be awakened in Austin, and he would commit a brutal act of murder and cannibalism that would shock the world and result in a formal psychological declaration of lycanthropy. Austin Kelly Haroff was born December 21st, 1996 in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida to parents Mina and Wade. Austin grew up in affluent Northern Palm Beach County. His father was a cosmetic dentist and his mother was a successful pharmacist. Austin was a happy kid, always smiling. His parents divorced in 2010 when Austin was 14, but it was an amiable split and they stayed close for the sake of Austin, both moving into homes in Jupiter, Florida. In high school, Austin mostly lived with his mother in the Shores, an upscale housing development. He went to school in Riviera Beach. He excelled in school, but was a quiet and reserved kid. In a high school essay, he described himself as happy, shy, nice, positive, and said he never gives up, but said that he wanted to be more confident and assertive. But as a senior, Austin bloomed. He became a football star. He sprouted into a strong, six-foot-tall athlete that could bench press nearly twice his body weight. But everyone who knew him described him as kind and gentle. 
his football coach says he had to constantly urge him to be more aggressive, that the kid was just too sweet. In 2015, Austin graduated high school. He considered going on to play football in college, but came to the conclusion he just wasn't aggressive enough, wasn't mean enough. His friends called him the gentle giant. So instead, he decided to study nutrition and muscular exercise science at Florida State University. He joined the Alpha Delta Phi fraternity, but unlike other frat kids, he wasn't a big partier. He was very much into eating right and being healthy. He was doing well in school, had great grades and lots of friends. But on August 15th, 2016, he transformed into a monster. The moon was high that night and nearly full, and Austin began to act odd. He told his mother he was immortal, that he felt like a superhero. She wondered if he was taking drugs and asked him, but he denied it. He told his father that when they were hiking, he could feel an evil presence lurking in the forest, trying to work its way inside of him. That night, he went to dinner with his sister, his father, and his father's girlfriend to Duffy's Sports Bar, a popular chain restaurant in Florida. On his way to the restaurant with his sister, he attempted to dart into traffic and told his sister he was trying to test out his powers. Seated at the table, Austin ordered an iced tea and drank it, then became agitated and aggressive. He began to complain about the waiter, insisting the service was slow. Getting so upset, he got up and stormed out of the restaurant. His mother lived two miles away, and he walked to her house stormed in, and began guzzling cooking oil straight from the bottle and eating handfuls of Parmesan cheese. When his mother saw him there in the kitchen drinking cooking oil, she ripped the bottle from his hand and asked, What the hell are you doing? His mother then insisted that he go back to the restaurant where his father was driving him there. Okay, just a small aside that if, like, my child came home and was guzzling cooking oil, I would be a little <laughs> more concerned and not just immediately drive him back to the restaurant. Right. Anyhow, back in the restaurant, Austin again began acting agitated and aggressive. And at one point, his father said he was making him upset, which Austin answered by loudly laughing in his face. His father was getting pissed off now, as well as embarrassed. It was a local restaurant and his friends were there. So he grabbed Austin by the shirt collar and asked him, What is wrong with you? Austin's dad's girlfriend intervened and calmed Austin down. But then, without a word, Austin just quietly got up and left, slipping out of the restaurant and into the warm Florida night. It was now around 8.30 p.m. Security footage shows him calmly exiting the restaurant, wearing a blue polo shirt and a red Make America Great Again hat on his head. He seems perfectly calm and isn't behaving erratically. When Austin's parents realized he'd slipped away again, they grew concerned. He'd never acted this way before, never just left without saying anything, leaving his wallet and phone behind. They were so alarmed, they actually called the police, and his frat brothers formed a posse to find him, combing the neighborhood. Austin strode feverishly through the Jupiter, Florida night, walking randomly for three miles. And as the pale moonlight fell down on him, he began to strip, tearing off his clothes, losing his humanity, grunting, growling, becoming a beast. 59-year-old John Stevens and his wife, 53-year-old Michelle, had converted their garage into a den. There were three sofas and a large flat-screen television, a pool table, a Jimmy Buffett-style bar, even an ice cream maker, and humidor for cigars. Michelle lovingly called it their garage mahal. On warm summer nights, they'd open the garage door to let the Florida air inside, often inviting their neighbors to join them for a drink. 
I like these two so much. I know, I it know, was right? A safe, friendly neighborhood where everyone knew each other. It's it's really cool to convert your garage into like that kind of thing and just have the door open. It's... Right, right. They seem so friendly. Oh, yeah, they do. <laughs> uh, on the night of August 5th, 2016, Michelle was relaxing on the sofa, watching television with the garage door open while John petered about inside the house. And this is when the monster attacked. Grunting, growling, making animal noises, Austin came barging into the open garage, surprising Michelle, who was astonished to have a naked 19-year-old man suddenly appear before her. As he entered the garage, he grabbed a machete that Stephen used for clearing brush. And then Austin was on the surprised woman, pummeling her, slashing at her with the machete, smashing her head against the concrete floor. Alarmed at the horrendous screams, John came racing into the garage to see his wife being bludgeoned and ran to help her. That's when the beast turned his attention to him, grabbing a Swiss army knife that happened to be lying there and viciously stabbing the man. When a neighbor, Jeff Fisher, heard screaming coming from the house, he ran over barefoot to see what was going on, looking into the open garage to see Austin viciously attacking his neighbors. He rushed to intervene, and Austin stabbed him five times in the back, neck, side, and head, causing Jeff to flee back to his house, wounded, bleeding, and frantically calling 911. The first deputy arrived and looked inside the open garage. To her horror, she saw a naked teenager huddled over an older man, eating his face. She immediately called for backup. She then fired her taser at him before attempting to pull him off the man. But Austin proved too strong for her. He wouldn't budge, even as she beat him with her baton. Three more sheriff's deputies arrived, all of them firing their tasers at Austin, all of them trying to rip the teenager off the man, who kept right on gnawing and ripping at the man's cheeks and brow, ripping huge mouthfuls of flesh from the man's face as he gripped him tight in a bear hug, refusing to let go. Finally, another deputy arrived with a canine unit, and they let the attack dog loose. When the snarling police dog attacked Austin, biting him, Austin finally relented and let go of the man. But John Stevens was dead. Apprehended and in handcuffs, Austin screamed out, Help me! I've eaten something bad! When the deputies asked him what it was he'd eaten, he said, Human! And spit out a chunk of flesh. There was hair embedded between his teeth. But he had eaten something bad. He'd actually drank toxic cleaning chemicals from inside the garage at some point, and his liver began to fail. He soon slipped into a coma. Weeks later, he'd awake from his coma, groggy and unsure of what had happened, only remembering bizarre bits and pieces of the night. He had to be hospitalized for two months after his arrest. This was not the first time someone had ripped off their clothes and gone on a rampage biting people in Florida. Far from it. Surprise! Who would imagine that this would become a common thing in Florida? They even had a name <laughs> for it. Excited delirium. Yeah, in, uh, in 2012, a 21-year-old Florida man, Florida man, <laughs> was, <laughs> was arrested after attacking and trying to chew the hand off a Miami police officer. In 2015, a 41-year-old man ran naked down the street in Melbourne, Florida, screaming he was God, and then attempted to have sex with a tree. In 2016, a 19-year-old man ripped off his clothes and threw himself through a window to attack the mother and son inside. And most famously was the Miami zombie, Rudy Eugene who, after tearing off his clothes, attacked a homeless man, ripping out his eyes and chewing off his face. Police were forced to shoot him four times 
the first shots have a, having absolutely no effect on him as he growled and savagely carried on with the attack. All of these people had been on or were suspected of having been on bath salts. Lab-made synthetic cathinones, a highly dangerous type of drug which included Cloud9, Scarface, White Lightning, and the most notorious, Flaca, also known as Gravel or the Zombie Drug. So the media immediately assumed he'd been on bath salts, in particular Flaca, the most notorious of them all. And the airwaves were filled with nonstop chatter about a flack of fuel double murder. But they were wrong. Toxicology testing showed absolutely no trace of these drugs. What investigators did discover was a series of increasingly disturbing notes he was leaving to himself on his phone, showing severe mental health decline. On the day of the attack, he wrote, Centaur, you are awoken. Don't let them kill you. Then, I wish to be normal, just a normal guy, not too nice, not too mean, but I can still run because I can't be tamed. I can do whatever I want. I was called the silent killer for a reason. And then, what's the weakest thing about a centaur? What's the biggest help? To a centaur. Like a centaur, it appears Austin felt he was becoming more beast than man, that an animal nature was taking over him. Later, when he was remotely interviewed right in the hospital room after he'd awoken from his coma by Dr. Phil, which which is disgusting. Who let this interview happen? I'm sorry, but that guy is an exploitive bloodsucker. Anyway. Austin said to Dr. Phil, I'm just so sorry. So, so sorry. And when asked why he attacked the married couple, he replied, I don't know, and began to weep hysterically. At his eventual arraignment, Austin pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to two charges of first-degree murder and was sent to a psychiatric hospital to be diagnosed. And the doctor diagnosed him as suffering from clinical lycanthropy. As we discussed on our first werewolf episode, this is psychiatric syndrome in which a person believes he can transform into an animal, often causing the person to behave in a bestial manner, such as growling, howling, crawling on all fours, and biting. The delusion can cause sadistic and even cannibalistic or necrophilic behavior. It is thought to stem from schizophrenia or other mental disorders and is sometimes called the werewolf delusion. The diagnosis was made by forensic psychiatrist Dr. Philip Resnick in a 38-page mental health assessment. In the assessment are Austin's claims that he thought he was half-dog the night of the attack, which gave him the power to run with great speed. He also believed that he had sprouted hair from his face becoming a wolfman-like creature, and that he attacked Michelle because he thought she was a witch trying to take away his powers. The doctor concluded that Austin was obviously in a psychotic mental state at the time of the crime, saying, quote, the fact that Mr. Haroff persisted in biting the male victim in the presence of police officers, in spite of threats of being shot, being tased, and receiving multiple kicks to the head, suggests that Mr. Haroff was actively psychotic, end quote. And in November 2022, Florida Judge Sherwood Bauer of the 19th Judicial Circuit found Haroff not guilty by reason of insanity and ordered him to be sent to a mental hospital. Unlike Manuel Blanco Romasanto, the Spanish serial killer, in the first of our werewolf episodes, whose lycanthropy defense did not work. In this case, Austin Haroff escaped a life in prison due to his lycanthropy. This is very, very rare. 
so many seriously mentally ill people deep in psychosis when they commit their crimes are still found guilty and end up in prison or even executed. Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, comes to mind. Yeah, no, it's very hard to prove insanity in a court of law. It's not really about how psychotic a person is. It's about how, how well they grasp the difference between right and wrong. And we all know a werewolf has no morals and no concept of right and wrong. And so we see from the dawn of humanity with the oldest known work of literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh, where the goddess of sex and violence transforms a man into a wolf, all the way to Florida in 2022 with a fully documented case of clinical lycanthropy. The werewolf has always been with us and always will be with us and is in many ways a fundamental element of what makes us human and how we perceive our own existence. But if you thought Werewolf October was over, think again, because we're going to be back with a Halloween bonus episode for you, dear listeners and fellow freaks. Very exciting. More fun stuff as spooky season reaches its peak. And as always, we want to hear from you. Send us an email. Let us know how you liked our Werewolf October, what other topics you'd like to see covered, or just say hi at MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com. That's MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you on Halloween. Halloween. <laughs>